Chapter One of People Like That. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. People Like That by Kate Langley Bosher. Chapter One one of the advantages of being an unrequired person of twenty-six with an income sufficient for necessities is the right of choice as to a home locality i am that sort of person and having exercised said right i am now living in scarborough square to my friends and relatives it is amazing inexplicable and beyond understanding that i should wish to live here i do not try to make them understand and therein lies grievance against me because of my failure to explain what they are pleased to call a peculiar decision on my part, I am at present the subject of heated criticism. It will soon stop. What a person does or doesn't do is of little importance to more than three or four people. By Christmas my foolishness will have ceased to cause comment, ceased to interest those to whom it doesn't matter really where or how I live. I like living in Scarborough Square very much. After many years spent in the homes of others, I am now the head of half a house, the whole of which is mine. And even though it is situated on the last square of respectability in a part of the town long forgotten by the descendants of its former residents, I am filled with a sense of proprietorship that is warm and comforting, and already I have learned to love it, this nice, old-fashioned house in which I live. Until very recently, Scarborough Square was only a name. There had been no reason to visit it, and had I ventured to it, I would have seen little save a tiny park bounded on four sides by houses of shabby gentility, for the most part detached, and of a style of architecture long since surrendered to more undesirable designs. The park is but an open space whose straggly trees and stunted shrubs and dusty grass add dejection to the atmosphere of shrinking respectability, which the neighborhood still makes effort to maintain. But that, too, I have learned to love, for I see in it that which I never noticed in the large and handsome parks uptown. As a place of residence, this section of the city I am just beginning to know has become very interesting to me. No one of importance lives near it, and the occupants of its houses, realizing their social submergence and pecuniary impotence, have too long existed in the protection of obscurity to venture into the publicity which civic attention necessitates and on first acquaintance it is not attractive. I agree with my friends in that. I did not come here because I thought it was an attractive place in which to live. They cannot say, however, even my most protesting friends, that I am not living in a perfectly proper neighborhood. The front of my house faces, beyond the discouraged little park, a strata of streets which unfold from lessening degrees of dreariness and dinginess to ever-increasing expensiveness and unashamed architectural extravagances to the summit of residential striving called for impressiveness the avenue but behind it is a section of the city of which i am as ignorant as if it were in the depths of the sea or the wilds of primeval forest i have travelled much but i do not know the city wherein i live i know but a part of it the pretty part there was something Mrs. Mundy wanted to say to me tonight, and did not say. I love the dear soul. 
I could not live here without her, could not learn what I am learning without her help and sympathy and loyalty. But at times I wish she were a bit less fond of chatting. She is greatly puzzled. She, too, cannot understand why I have come to Scarborough Square to live, and I am quite certain she thinks it strange I do not tell her. How can I tell that of which I am not sure myself? That is, clearly and definitely sure. I am not trying to be sure. It is enough that I am here, free to come and go as I choose, to plan my day as I wish, to have time for the things I once had no time for, and why must there always be explanations and reasons and justifications for one's acts? The daily realization each morning, on awaking, that the day is mine, that there are no customs with which to comply, no regulations to follow, no conventions to be conformed to, at the end of two weeks, still stirs and thrills and awes me a little. And I am constantly afraid it is not true that I am here to stay. And then again, with something of fear and shrinking, and uncertainty, I realize my bridges are burned, and I must stay. It's pleased you are with your rooms, I hope, Miss Dandridge? Hands on her hips, Mrs. Mundy had looked somewhat anxiously at me before going out. If it's a home-looking place you're after, you've got it. But when you first come down to Scarborough Square, it made me feel queer inside to think of your living here, really living. If you think you can be satisfied... I am sure I can be satisfied. Why not? I smiled, and, going over to the window, straightened the curtain which had caught and twisted a fern leaf growing in its box. I am a perfectly unencumbered human being, who... But an unencumbered woman ain't much of a human being. Mrs. Mundy dropped the afternoon paper she had brought up and stooped to get it. I mean, a woman is made for encumbrances... And if she don't have any... She hesitated, and looked around the room with its simple furnishings, its firelight and lamplight, its many books and few pictures, its rugs and desk and tables, the gifts of other days, and presently she spoke again. Being you like so to look out the windows, it's well this house has two front rooms opening into each other. If it's comfortable and convenient that you want to be, you're certainly that, but comforts and conveniences don't keep you company exactly. I don't want company yet. You and Bettina are all I need. I haven't said I was to live here a thousand years, or that I wouldn't get tired of myself in less time. But until I do... There was a ring at the front doorbell, and Mrs. Mundy went to answer it. The puzzled look I often saw in her eyes when talking to me still filled them, but she said nothing more except good night and when I heard her footsteps in the hall below, I went to the door and locked it. This new privacy, this sense of freedom from unescapable interruption, was still so precious that though an unnecessary precaution, I turned the key that I might feel perfectly sure of quiet hours ahead, and at my sigh of satisfaction I laughed. Going into my bedroom, which adjoined my sitting-room, I hung in the closet the coat I had left on a chair, put away my hat and gloves, and again looked around, as if they were still strange, the white bed and bureau, the wash rugs, the muslin curtains, the many contrasts to former furnishings, and again I sighed contentedly. They were mine. The house I am now living in is indeed an old-fashioned one, but well-built and of admirable design. The rooms are few, only eight in all, 
and four of them I have taken for myself. The upper four. The lower floor is occupied by Mrs. Mundy and Bettina, her little granddaughter. When I first saw the house, its condition was discouraging. Not for some time had it been occupied, and repairs of all kinds were needed. To get it in order gave me a strange joy, and the weeks in which it was being painted and papered and beautified with modern necessities were of an interest only a person, a woman person, can feel, who has never had a home of her own before. When everything was finished, the furnishings in place, and I established, I knew, what I no longer made effort to deny to myself, that I was doing a daring thing. I was taking chances in a venture I was still afraid to face. End of chapter 1